take a Bible and open it to John chapter 15. I appreciate Matt giving you a little uh, forecast on the book. We still have a handful of copies. There are some sitting outside each of the main doors. If you'd like to grab one on your way out, we would love for you to have one. It's a book called Before You Share Your Faith, Five Ways to Be Evangelism Ready by Matt Smeathurst. It's a simple, pretty easy read, big font, and has pictures, so it's good enough for even me. I spent my preteen and my teenage years growing up in Tulsa, Oklahoma. My family lived on a corner lot. What you don't realize when you live on a corner lot is how much grass you have to take care of. In fact, from the beginning until the end, it would take us about four hours to complete all the yard work that it took to do our whole yard. Whether that was mowing or weed eating or trimming, it took a long time. I still remember the blessed, blessed day when my dad retired the push mower and got a self-propelled Honda. Praise be the Lord for that day. If you've never pushed a push mower, you should. You just should. What I remember the most, however, about that whole experience, I, I remember lots of things. I remember my dad. I remember his work ethic. I remember him instilling things into us as kids. But the thing that I think most of when I remember that, the memory that I'm brought back to is always the weed eating. You know, back before we had gas-powered weed eaters, back before we had all kinds of fancy batteries, we had a corded weed eater. And what I remember about that is to begin the process of weed eating, you had to go to the garage and we had like 200 foot extension cords. And you had to first plug it in and then you had to roll it all the way out and you had to get the second one and you'd tie it into a knot so it would plug it in so it wouldn't yank unloose. And you had to lay it all out all the way to the end of the yard before you went and got the weed eater so you could plug it in. One of the realities of our yard is we had lots of trees in our yard. So one of the things you had to be careful when you got the weed eater was negotiating all of this cord because if you went too far, you'd get hung up on a tree. You'd never be able to complete it. So you'd have to weave around trees and go back and forth and you were constantly chasing the cord. Friends, this morning what I want to suggest to you is this image of a plugged-in weed eater. And what I want to suggest to you is that you were actually made to be like that corded weed eater. That it actually gives us a profound image and metaphor that we ought to hold on to and we ought to glean. Because what I want to suggest to you is the Bible is going to give us the same illustration. It's just going to backdate it a couple thousand years. This morning we're in our fifth and our final week in a series on evangelism. We've talked about the content of the gospel. Beloved, it's actually been my hope that we'd be washed in the gospel of Jesus Christ every single week because all of us need the gospel. It's not just people who don't know Jesus who need to be reminded of God's truth. It's those of us who are following Jesus who need to be regularly reminded of God's truth. 
And we've talked about the challenges of sharing the gospel. We've talked about how you overcome your fear. And we've talked about our motivations for evangelism, that we would know and understand what we have in Jesus Christ. And last week we leaned into the why of evangelism. And I joked with somebody that last week, mid-message, this is a crazy confession, I rewrote this week's message. Because it occurred to me what we're missing, what we're missing in this whole series is the how of evangelism. That's why if you've been paying attention, all of them were cute. They all lined up with a C. David helped me put that together. This week I couldn't come up with a C. David's out of town. We give you a W. <laughs> Just not that as creative as he is. I don't think things through as well as he does. This morning we get the work of evangelism considering the how. To do that, we're going to be in John 15. So as we get going, let's just pray about our time in God's Word. Gracious Father, what a good thing it is for us to be gathered together in your name. Father, you have given us the church that we might gather together to be reminded of the work of your Son, Jesus. That we we would be reminded that we've to be reconciled to you by the work of your son, Jesus. And to be reminded that we've been given the ministry of reconciliation. Father, that as your ambassadors, you've declared that you will make your appeal through us. So gracious Father, we ask this morning that in your loving kindness, you might make us more aware of the fullness of your grace that you might make us more aware of the blessings of our salvation, that we become more aware of the enormous treasure that we have in Jesus Christ, that our cups would overflow, and that the gospel would pour out of us everywhere we go. Fathers, we open your word this morning. Would you grant us understanding? Would you grant us insight? And would you use your word to transform our lives into the likeness of your son, Jesus? We ask this in his name. Amen. Our aim this morning is the how of evangelism. So as I used the illustration last week, when your neighbor walks over, when you're getting your coffee at Starbucks, when you go to Chili's as a family or when you're getting your hair cut, how do you do evangelism? Let's open John 15. Jesus is going to show us. John 15, starting in verse 1. I am the true vine, and my Father is the vine dresser. This is the seventh and final of Jesus' I am statements in the Gospel of John. Now, I've already told you, coming into the summer, we're going to start into the book of Exodus when my family gets back from vacation. This idea of I am is pronouncedly huge. I'm not even sure that's grammatically correct. It's an enormous statement for Jesus to say, I am. Each one of those statements is a messianic 
claim and each one he ties himself to a, a picture or a metaphor that you might better understand him. So in John 6, we have, I am the bread of life. In John 8, we have, I am the light of the world. In John 10, I am the gate. In John 10, I am the good shepherd. In John 11, I am the resurrection and the life. In John 14, I am the way, the truth, and the life. So he has set up a pattern in his teaching of revealing who he is. So when you get to John 15 and he says, I am the true vine. He's saying a whole lot more than think about grapes. Jesus is making a a messianic statement and he's claiming to be a sufficient savior, but he's also forecasting for us what the believer's life is supposed to look like. He's forecasting for us how do we go forward in faith. Let me help you see that. If you were to take this theme of the vine, if you were to walk it through the Scriptures, you would find many times in the Old Testament that Israel is referred to as the vine of God. God's doing something. He's planted a vineyard. You'd see it in the book of Psalms. You'd see it in Jeremiah. You'd see it in Ezekiel. They all have extended passages about God planting a vine and it being Israel. But most notably, you'd see it in Isaiah 5. I'm not reading it to you. I'm just giving you the explanation. What you find in Isaiah 5 is Israel is presented as a vineyard planted by God. And God, having planted this vineyard, expects that it's going to grow a a good crop. That's why you plant a vineyard. And yet this vineyard only produces a, a bad crop. It only produces bad grapes and has to be destroyed. And what you would find if you consider that Isaiah passage, if you tracked it through the Old Testament, you would figure out that God gave Israel a purpose that it never fulfilled. If you get, let me give you an example. Think back to Genesis 12. God gives Abraham a set of promises, the last of which is, through all, through you, all of the families on earth shall be blessed. Now that promise is not fulfilled in the Old Testament. That promise was not fulfilled through Israel. That promises were fulfilled in, okay, you, this is church. You would say it's fulfilled in Jesus. He's showing you something. When Jesus says, I am the true vine, he's revealing something about himself. That this, this promise, this ministry that was supposed to happen through Israel that didn't happen, Jesus is bringing to bear. He's bringing it to light. He's contrasting himself from Israel. I am the true vine. And my father is the vine dresser. Friends, what you need to draw from that, one of the things you need to grab onto is that Israel wasn't the vine. And that seems out there. But let me make it closer to home. You aren't the vine. 
And I don't think we grab onto that enough. You aren't the vine. Which is to say, life does not come from you. Which is to say, you, on your own, cannot produce real, true life. You're not the vine. Jesus is the vine. If we were to lean into the greater context of the book of John, what you find in John 15 is that Jesus has gathered His disciples together. They're in the upper room. They're celebrating the Passover meals. He's preparing His disciples for His death. He's told them repeatedly, I'm going. I'm going. He's told them that He's going to send them the Holy Spirit that they might have fellowship. He's told them that He's going to comfort them. And he keeps reiterating, I'm going. And then he says to them, I'm the true vine. But Jesus, though he was about to leave, leave them, headed towards the cross to die on their behalf, tells them, I am the true vine. He's instilling a mission in them. He's instilling a purpose in them. But don't miss this. He's instilling a how in them. He's instilling life in them. He's going to show them how this works. Because He is the true vine. So the question we have this morning is how is Jesus, who died... Who was resurrected, who ascended to the right hand of the Father, how does Jesus accomplish what Israel could not accomplish? How does Jesus produce a crop? And I'm not just talking about a spiritual crop through his death. How does Jesus produce fruit? And perhaps more plainly and more to the point of our series, How might Jesus save your friend? How might Jesus save your neighbor? How might Jesus save your coworker? How might Jesus save your family members? That's the question we want to lean into this morning. And we find the answer in the vine metaphor in John 15, verse 2. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes that it may bear more fruit. Now follow me on this. Jesus has proclaimed, I'm the true vine. And now he introduces this idea of branches. Now, I want you to think for just a moment about the last time you were at the grocery store. Hornbacher's, Walmart, all these pictures. You find a bunch of grapes. Generally, they're in a bag. And what you find in a bunch of grapes is a bunch of stems. They're called pedestals. I googled it. No idea how to pronounce it. 
probably just murdered it. The grapes are connected to these pedestals. The pedestals are connected to peduncles. I don't know how to say that either. The pedestals connected to the peduncles connect to the shoots, which connect to the vine. You know that as the little branches that connect to the little branches that connect to the little stemmy things that get stuck in your mouth when you eat the grape. Regardless of what it's called, you know what it looks like, you can consider the image. The vine, this shoot, these little branches do not produce fruit. The vine enables the branches to produce fruit. Look back at verse 2. The vine creates branches. Those branches, according to the text, are in Him. You're to see that the branches proceed from Him. They come from Him. It's this idea that these are the followers who are united with Him. It's the same language we considered last week when we brought up union with Christ. We find it here. The branches are in Him. They're connected to Him. There are two things that happen to those branches. Two things that the gardener does to the branches. First, to the branches who do not bear fruit. The text says they're taken away. You should know that verb also means they're lifted up. The idea here is and I don't know anything about gardening grapes, is that you're working with the plant in such a way to increase its productivity. Now that can be taken away as in you separate things, like this needs more sun, I'm pushing it away from the pack. However you want to take it, take it away, lift it up. The idea is you're increasing the productivity. Every commentary I put it read suggested that that's the only way to see this. Now, if you want to read it as you're taken away, you're cut off, you'd miss the fact that these are branches in Him. You'd have to deny that. We're not denying that. So the second group of branches are branches that are producing fruit. And what you see is He prunes those branches. Now, I don't know how much you think about pruning, but I've never fathomed it to be a comfortable experience. We have a a set of hydrangeas in our front yard. I have to prune them from time to time. I take my shears and I cut off things. I've never imagined my hydrangeas enjoy that. There's a process that the gardener will put his branches through to help them yield more fruit because the reality of the metaphor is the whole reason the vine exists the reason the vine creates branches is to create fruit we'll keep seeing that as we move along but what you should lean into what you should hear is that the father is at work in the branches in such a way that we would be more productive spiritually. That we would produce fruit. 
that we would produce a harvest. John answers one of your immediate objections in verse 3. Already you are clean because of the word that I've spoken to you. John's confirming for his readers that those who are being pruned, those who are being lifted up, those who are being set aside, those branches are in him. They're already in him. What I want you to hear in that is that they've already been justified by the completed work of Jesus Christ. Which is to say, you don't produce fruit to justify yourself. When God looks down on you, He doesn't say, are they doing enough for me? No, beloved, having believed and trusted in Jesus Christ, when God the Father looks down on you, He's completely satisfied in you because of Jesus. That's the heart of the gospel. God is satisfied with you because of the work of Jesus and in his satisfaction in Christ in you, he's going to prune you. He's going to work on you. He's going to mold and shape you. You don't need to be clean. You've already been cleansed. Cleansed. It's a testimony to their in himness to their union with Christ. So John, rather Jesus, spells it out for us. Verse 4, we need to hear this. Abide in me and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. What you find here in 4 and 5 is Jesus getting to the heart of the metaphor. If you cut a branch away from the vine, it will produce no fruit. If you cut a rose branch away from a rose bush, roses will not come from it. Jesus says, Abide in me, and I in you. Years ago, I was teaching this passage to a group of high school students in Dallas. To be honest with you, when I finished teaching, I walked away from my little music stand, completely convinced that I'd hit a home run, that I crushed that message. I went and sat down, thinking about what a great job I had done. And after our Sunday school class ended, Amber, one of our students, walked over and said, Ben, I really enjoyed your message, but I have one question. I have no idea what the word abide means. I'm not going to make that mistake again. The word abide means to dwell It means to remain in. It means to lodge. It has this idea of a permanent residency. I live at 3011 15th Avenue South. It's my permanent residency. Do I occasionally sleep elsewhere? Yeah. There are times when we'll go to visit Pam's parents, we'll stay at their house, my parents will stay at my house, we'll go on vacation, we stay at other places. But I have a 
permanent residency. There is a place in which I dwell. I make it my home. It's my most natural, comfortable place that I go. It's my place. When, when he points to this idea of abiding, he gets to this very idea that Jesus is our source of, source of strength. He's our source of life. I want you to think for a moment of a grape abiding in a vine. The moment the branch gets cut, the grape is no longer producing life. It's just hanging there waiting to rot. What I want to suggest to you this morning is that to abide in Christ is to live connected with Him all the time. It's to live in unity with Him, in fellowship with Him. Consider this exhortation by Charles Spurgeon. Spurgeon in his commentary writes, Dwell in God, brethren. Not sometimes go to Him, but abide in Him. Do you see the distinction? We could treat our relationship with God like He's the Holiday Inn Express. I go there and I stay sometimes because they've got comfy pillows and I walk away refreshed. But it's not where I live. Don't go to Him. Abide in Him. Several years ago, I was asked to lead a seminar at a retreat. I entitled my seminar, Don't Be a Quiet Time Christian. Controversial, right? Here was the idea. Don't lead a compartmentalized life. As in, you spend time with the Lord. Man, I got 20 minutes in with Jesus this morning. It was good. Let's go. And then disconnect. Beloved, I want you to keep thinking of my weed eater. It's why I think about it often. Because as I would drag my weed eater around my yard and I'd get caught between trees and it'd come unplugged, all of a sudden it would stop. Like, why is this not working? And you'd have to follow it back. But that's how we're intended to live. A connected with Jesus life all the time. Abiding in Him. It's for you to realize, for me to realize that we aren't cordless utilities. As in, plug it in for half an hour and then go until you run out and then plug it in again. I think this is the illustration Jesus would have used if he was around now. My weed eater. But we're to drag our cord around all over the yard. Being mindful that it doesn't get tangled. Jesus says in verse 5, I am the vine. You are the branches. The very reality of that metaphor is... The only way you stay alive is to stay connected. The only way you stay alive is to stay connected. Life means bearing fruit. 
The only way you bear fruit is to stay connected. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. I'm not trying to pick on us. Sometimes we ask the question, why don't I have a more spiritually productive life? Apart from me, you can do nothing. Beloved, this is our, our how. How do we love our neighbor? Abide in him. That's Jesus' answer. How do we get more bold to share Christ with our neighbor? Abide in Him. That's Jesus' answer. How do we know what to say when we finally want to open our mouths to proclaim the gospel to somebody in our lives? How do we know what to say? Abide in Him. That's Jesus' answer. What do you do if you're rejected? You're, you're fearful of a relationship. You don't want to step out. You don't know how they're going to respond. What do you do if you get rejected? Abide in Him. You can preach this. You got it, Nick. Friends, if we really consider the truth of what Jesus is proclaiming to us, we should get the idea that life, real life, Real productive life is found in abiding in Him. That's what bears fruit. That's what grows us in confidence. That's what allows us to speak. That's what gives us the words to say. That's what gives us the love in our heart. That's what centers us, not in the fear of man, but the fear of God. That's what motivates our why. Because we're so refreshed by the gospel, because we so know what we have in Jesus Christ, because we've abided in Him. As John comes to verses 5 and 6, there are many ways a repetition of verses 1 and 2. Do you know why you repeat things? Because you want people to get it. You, you want to repeat things. You want to give it multiple varieties because you're trying to help somebody understand. It, it's not like Jesus said, did I, did I already say that? Did, did I miss something? It's not like John thought, um, did I already write this? If anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away like a branch And withers. And the branches are gathered and thrown into the fire and burned. And if you abide in me, and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish, and it will be done for you. By this my Father is glorified, that you bear much fruit, and so prove to be my disciples. Friends, there's a 
clear and directed exhortation in this passage. Abide in Christ. Trust Christ. Live in Christ. One of the commentators I read this week defined abiding as cultivating intimacy with Christ through loving obedience. trusting Him. It's finding our hope in Him. It's finding our strength in Him. It's finding our courage in Him. Because what you find in abiding not only is life and spiritual productivity, you find the end of it is glorifying the Father. In the end you find that our abiding in Him glorifies the Father, bears fruit, and proves we're His disciples. If we take Jesus literally, but you and I need to be a little less caught up in the do this and don't do that, and a whole lot more caught up in am I abiding in Jesus Christ? Am I finding Him to be my whole life, my source? Am I living in Him now? Because, beloved, if we're to produce fruit, we don't have the ability to do it on our own. Our only means of fulfilling our purpose is to abide in Him. It's to remain in Him. So if we follow all of that through, if we grab back the metaphors and include my modern rendition, the idea that you might come to church to charge your faith for the week is not sufficient. The idea that you would spend five minutes or 15 minutes or even 90 minutes reading in the morning and then disconnecting is not sufficient. Now don't hear me say don't spend time in God's Word. Spend time in God's Word. Just don't disconnect. Remain in Him. How do you do that? I'm glad you asked. I have two suggestions. Here's the first. I happened by it on my own. They say necessity is the mother of invention. Here it comes. As a college student, I noticed in my own life a disconnect between me reading the Bible and praying in the morning and me having a sustaining strength to the day to trust God. So I took on a practice. What I began to do is, is I would read my Bible in the morning and I would journal, I would write, I would look for a, a word a promise, a truth, a command, an attribute of God, something that stuck out to me, and I would write it on a note card. And then I would stick it in my pocket. I've since found out I'm not the only one who does this. What is really strange about this practice is the number of times you put your hands in your pockets and think, why do I have something in my pocket? Ironically, 
in the middle of the second song this morning, I put my hand in my pocket and said, why do I have something in my pocket? You'd think I'd figure that out. And you pull out a note card. And what you have is the truth that you spent that morning meditating on so that you might be reconnected, re-engaged to the truth of God. You might be re-established. I'd commend that practice to you. It's really, really helpful way to take a normal morning practice and help it sprinkle throughout your whole day with truth. My second suggestion to you. I offer you this, a process I learned from John Piper. Several years ago at the Church Leaders Conference in Minneapolis, he gave a message entitled Preaching in the Spirit. I probably will even load it to our Facebook page if you want to watch it. And in his introduction to his message, he goes on to share that preaching in the Spirit, this idea, this thought process, isn't merely about preaching. goes on to say you can apply it to anything. Grocery shopping in the Spirit. Mowing your lawn in the Spirit. Putting your kids to bed in the Spirit. Sharing Christ with your neighbors in the Spirit. And he shared a short acronym, which I still regularly practice. Let me share it with you. His acronym is APTAT. A-P-T-A-T. You can write that down. Everyone should look. Come on, play with me. APTAT. Here's the acronym. Admit, promise, trust, act, thanks. What the acronym starts to stand for is A, admit. Admit that you cannot possibly do this on your own. That's a John 15 reality, correct? Apart from me, you can do nothing. So as you approach your afternoon, how am I going to go through this? We have three soccer games and a family meeting. That's my afternoon. It's going to be cold. How am I going to endure it? How am I going to have the patience? How am I going to walk through it all? Loading chairs, unloading chairs. You know, how, how do you engage any of that? Well, I should admit, Father, I can't do this on my own. Having admitted that, that brings me to P. I can't do it on my own. You can. You have given me promises. And I want to claim your promises. I have three to share with you. Promises I regularly use in my life. One is Isaiah 41, verse 10. Fear not, for I am with you. Be not dismayed, for I am your God. I will strengthen you, I will help you, and I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. But when you acknowledge you can't do it, And you remember God promising you He will strengthen you. He will help you. 
and he will uphold you. It's epic. Second promise I offer you. Philippians 4.19 And my God will supply every need of yours according to his riches and glory in Christ Jesus. How am I going to do this? Will I have enough? No, I couldn't possibly have enough. But God will supply all of my needs in Christ. Third promise. 2 Corinthians 9.8, my personal favorite. And God is able to make all grace abound to you, so that having all sufficiency in all things at all times, you may abound in every good work. I get asked this from time to time. Why do your folders have writing on them? Because in this last song we preach, the same before we get up to preach, I sit in my seat and I say, Lord, I can't possibly stand in that pulpit and proclaim your word. I'm not enough. I don't have it. I don't have the, the boldness. I don't have the authority. I can't. But God, you have promised that you're able to make all grace abound to me. So that having all sufficiency in all things, that you may abound in every good work. Because of what God has promised me in Jesus Christ. If you admit, you claim a promise, this work gets good now. Can't do it. God's enough. T, A-P-T. You trust His promise. I've got to be honest with you. That's the hard one. God, you've promised you'll strengthen me. You've promised you'll help me. You've promised you'll uphold me. Think about the lame man laying on the ground when Jesus says, get up, take up your mat and walk. You got to think about that for a moment. That brother on the ground has to go, okay, and try. Jesus doesn't pick him up. Jesus says, trust me. Believe the promise. And believe the promise so much that you, having admitted, having claimed the promise, having trusted, you now act. But if I stand here, Believing and acting out that he has promised all sufficiency in all things at all times that you may abound in every good work. Finally, the T, thanks. Give thanks. Might I suggest to you that this idea of aptat, admit, promise, trust, act, thanks, connects you to God the Father? Because it requires you to entrust everything to Him. I mean everything. How do I endure this? Can't do it. Jesus can. I'm going to trust Him. I'm going to act out. 
I'm going to believe the promise. Second series I taught here was the book of Hebrews. We define the word faith as living as if what God says is true. That's faith. It's believing God's word and living them out. You know what abiding is? It's out-tatting. It's believing God's word is true and living it out. You want to abide in Christ? You want to be productive? Believe God's word is true and act it out. And in the end, give thanks. Because he has never once let us down. Not once. Oh, beloved, he will at times answer your prayers differently than you'd like. But he won't let you down. Let me pray for us. Gracious Father, we are so thankful for Jesus. We're thankful for his death. We're thankful for his resurrection. We're thankful for his ascension. For, Father, by the completed work of Jesus, by our believing in him, we are completely justified. We're forgiven. By believing in the completed work of your son, Jesus, God, you've declared you're completely satisfied in us. Father, would you help us to abide in you that we might be completely satisfied in you? Father, would you help us abide in you that we would remain in you? We'd stay connected to you. We'd live as if your word was true. We'd be reminded of your promises and we'd live them out. Such that we ask ourselves, how do we love our neighbors? How do we share the gospel? We're satisfied with Jesus. We're abiding in Jesus. We're connected in Jesus. Father, would you just help us to see that the realest, the sweetest, and the best life that you have for us is found in Christ. And we might grow in our satisfaction in Christ. We might live out all that you've given us to do merely by abiding in you. Father, for you have promised that when we abide in you, the Father will be glorified, will be productive, and it confirms we belong to you. Father, would you do this in our lives? In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.